0: In today's message, Mike Burdick introduces us to a new series on the book of Nehemiah. This is Awaken Online, a virtual library of the Sunday morning messages at Awaken Church in McMinnville, Oregon. Well, I am happy to be here today. I hope you guys are. Are we in a celebratory mood? We should be. Um, Today, I get the amazing task... Uh, presenting to you a coming attraction here at Awaken Church. In the weeks to come, many of us will be privileged to stand before you as we walk through the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is the telling of just one part of an amazing story of the Old Testament. The book takes us through the final reconstruction of Jerusalem after the release from Babylonian captivity. Though only one part of the entire story, Nehemiah represents the resolve and the sheer determination of God's people on a journey of restoration. Today I will attempt to set the scene of this truly life-changing moment in history. We will walk through our story of intrigue, conflict, a little bit of passion. But I challenge you, as all that will come after me will, to not just see this as a story. Not just take a look at this as a retelling of historical events. No, we're going to invite you... To see a revealing of God's true nature, of His unchanging nature, His overwhelming love for His chosen people and immense grace and mercy streaming through every painful and difficult step they took as they returned to Him. See, Nehemiah is not just a story. It's a promise from God being honored. And not only honored, delivered to a people chosen by and loved by their creator. This is a tremendous journey of a people traveling not just to their former land. Not a simple returning to their former home. This, this is a triumphant journey to a place of restoration. And as you will see, that moment of restoration starts at the altar. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to stand before you to just pour out our hearts and pour out our worship. Lord, we thank you for those that are here, those that are listening online, that we can come into your word and we can see who you are and to get a glimpse of not just your nature but what you have for each and every one of us in our lives even today so i just invite you to be in this space and lord i ask that our the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart will always be found acceptable in your sight oh lord our strength and our redeemer in jesus name amen? Okay, there we go. I get you to say something. All right, so to properly set up this book, we actually kind of have to walk back a little bit in history, and trying to figure that out, I was trying to factor in a whole bunch of stuff, but I actually think it won't cut into our lunch hour if we start at Genesis 1. Uh, won't. All right, let's not do that. <laughs> But to fully grasp the enormity of the, of the time and situation that Nehemiah is in, we do have to at least step back into the Babylonian captivity. We have to kind of appreciate what's happened and how we got to where we're at if we're going to see this story of restoration So, highly prophesied to warn the Israelites of their plight. How many times in the Old Testament did they get warned and they got warned and they got warned and they didn't really heed the warnings. And so, eventually, as in this case, God has chosen to allow the enemies of Judah and Israel to rise up and take captive this mighty nation. This is due to their repetitive disobedience But even though God is allowing this time of captivity, He actually uses the prophet Jeremiah to better enlighten and help them understand what is to come. The 29th chapter of Jeremiah is a letter that God asked to be written and sent to the elders, the priests, and all the people carried away into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. Here, God instructs them on how to live. While in captivity. He asks them to pray for and live in the peace that they actually pray for. He gives them some instructions as to who to avoid while you're in captivity. as so not to weaken their faith. And now... He also, in verses 10 to 14, shows and reveals this promise, this promise of restoration that will unfold. So, we're going to go through 10 through 14 real quick. So, this is Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. For thus saith the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and I will perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me... And go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place From which I cause you to be carried away captive. Now the first thing to note is that nothing here is gonna happen overnight. I don't know about you, but 70 years is a lot longer than I've been alive. Well, maybe not that much longer than I've been alive, but it's time. Nothing's happening overnight here. It's not go to your room for a 10-minute timeout and then come back out. Because I love you, I'm your parent, and let's move on our day. This is, this is a journey. Seventy years in captivity, and then the journey back which we'll look into. This time is going to take every ounce of resolve and perseverance that the Israelites can muster. And, not all that were taken captive actually survived to see the promise fulfilled. See, the conquest started right around 605 B.C., which was really when they have documented the first wave of Israelites taken captive. A second wave is believed to be around 597. And by 586 B.C., as we used to say, by then it was all over but the crying. This was not merely just a moving of your family to a different town. there There was bloodshed, there was loss of life, and Jerusalem, huh, that was reduced to rubble. The temple, the city structures, and the walls of the city lay in utter ruin. but... Years later, the king of Persia takes over Babylon. And within a year of that time frame, he issues a decree releasing everybody back to their own lands, which includes the Israelites back into the land of Jerusalem. Now, I want to give you a fairly accurate... well. At least a good idea of what we're talking about here. Okay, we're in the uh, latter parts of, we're right around 506 BC ish. The first wave of Israelites that come back from Babylon is about 50,000 people, give or take. This is the equivalent of awakened church. Inviting half the population of Yamhill County down here on a Monday morning because we're all going to take a trip. I hope we have enough cookies. (laughs) Half the population of Yamhill County. And the journey is going to be all on foot. And we're going to walk from here to Boise, Idaho. And when we get to Boise, we're going to turn around and we're actually going to come back. That's roughly eight to 900 miles. It's going to take four months and as I said, you get to do it on foot. But when you get back, your house is a pile of rocks. We're not talking about when you get home, flip over a chair, open up the drapes, sweep the floor, and you're back in business. No, you're walking into literally a pile of rocks. Ezra and Nehemiah are two books of the Old Testament that tell of this amazing journey back to restoration. Once thought of as one book, later divided, Authorship really isn't declared and therefore it's kind of unknown. Now, most scholars attribute the writing to these books as to being the work of Ezra, who was a priest of priestly position because of his high skill as a scribe in the law of Moses. For the sake of our study, verifying authorship isn't really necessary. We're not going to worry too much about that. Nor are we going to get mired down into the disputes of the exact time frames. Or if Ezra showed up before Nehemiah or Nehemiah before him, as a lot of the commentaries and theologians like to debate. Because I think if we get mired down and mucked into that one, we're really going to take away from the real story, which is the journey, which is the achieving of restoration. Simply put, we're just going to read the scriptures for the message and not just for the sake of the story. So who are the folks involved? Number one, we have this this gentleman by the name of Nehemiah. You will learn that Nehemiah at the time was an employee of the king of Persia and he gets granted permission to come back to Jerusalem And when he gets back, his main focus is going to be on the physical structure of the city. He's going to rebuild the city. More importantly, he's going to rebuild the walls and the security of Jerusalem. His colleagues before him include Ezra. Ezra was a highly skilled scribe, as I told you. But see, Ezra, his role wasn't to put the rocks back into place. His role was more of rebuilding the community's worship as a group. So in other words, his reconstruction piece was more spiritual in nature. And before him, we have this gentleman by the name of Zerubbabel. His job was to focus more so... On rebuilding the temple. In short. We have. Zerubbabel. Who was focused on. Refocused. Or was focused on. The house of worship. Followed by Ezra. Who was focused on. The community worship. And then we had Nehemiah. Come into the picture focused on the security of the community's worship. All very, very, very important tasks. As we move through, you're going to see appearances by a couple kings. You're going to see a whole bunch of the citizens of Israel coming together. And you're even going to see a few outsiders whose main goal in life was to disrupt the Reconstruction, who was to try to stop the restoration process. But all of these people, over decades of dedicated hard work, put on the display the overwhelming grace, mercy, love and devotion of a God towards His people. If this story was a movie, please be sure that the part of God will be played by himself. This is more, though, than just a story of several projects being completed. This restoration is a process. It's a process with multiple projects needing to be completed, but no one single project was more important than the other. They all had a part to play. They all needed to happen so the next step could take place, so the next step could take place. But all the projects put together show the vast importance and the significance of the process of restoration. Let's take a look real quick at Ezra. We're going to go into three 1 through 3, and then we'll touch 4 here in a minute. See, Ezra is the book that talks about what happened before Nehemiah showed up. It was about the first arrival of the Israelites coming back in from captivity and walking into this place of total destruction. Rocks everywhere. Where did they start? What did they do, and how did they get it done? Notice we're in the seventh month, because that is important, or it will become important, and it will become quite significant. So Ezra 3, 1 through 3. And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brethren priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening burnt offerings. Now let's stop right there. Let's look at one of the most important takeaways from that. Is there was a presence of fear. People around them weren't happy they were back. Y'all came back from Boise, showed up, and there were people already here going, well, there goes the neighborhood. This, this was not welcome news to everybody in the area. And so, if you go through the book of Ezra, you'll learn that there were times where the work on the temple was actually stopped because of these folks. But here, we're kind of at the, we're kind of at the beginning stage. The Israelites had this little cloud of fear of what might happen, of what is to come. Of how are we going to get this cleaned up? How is all this stuff going to be restored? And how are we going to keep the neighbors from taking us out in the process? There was fear. But even though that fear was present, the second most important takeaway is their desire to worship was actually stronger. when faced with the monumental task of rebuilding their city, their lives, and their relationships with God, they chose to start at the altar. Facing their fear, they rolled over one rock, which led to another, and then to the next. The starting point of restoration for this nation of Israel was actually found At the altar. They use the altar as a place of centered worship, unified together. Again, 50,000 people standing as one before the Lord. A unified body, a unified voice, worshiping God before the altar. Let's take a look at the next verse if we can. And, and take a look at the time frame and how significant it is. Verse 4, they also kept the Feast of the Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinance for each day. Now I'm going to admit to you the call out of this specific festival is quite intriguing to me. Okay, so they're building the altar, they're starting worship, If you know anything, which I know very little, but if you go back through the Old Testament, there's a lot of Jewish festivals and feasts and things all throughout the year. In the seventh month, there's actually three of them. And the Feast of the Tabernacles is the last of the three for that month that they were in. So I was looking at that, trying to Trying to make some sort of hugely theologically impacted message for why that was, and I almost came up with nothing. See, the Feast of the Tabernacles, also called the Feast of the Booths, was to commemorate the exodus, the part of the exodus from Egypt as in the dwellings that the Israelites lived at during their 40 years in the wilderness they were called booths or sukkot if i pronounce that correctly and it was all really a festival to remember that time frame where god dwelt with the israelites on their journey through the wilderness Of note, though, what I found in my little studies is that of all of the festivals of the times of years, it was mostly known for its celebratory nature. It was one of the largest celebrations to God than most of them. doesn't mean it was the most important or least important. So I looked at this verse and I'm going, why is he calling this out? Is it incidental? I mean, we're in the seventh month, so he's just, making sure that everybody after him knows that they got it right and they put in the Festival of the Booze because the Festival of the Booze was supposed to happen on the 15th day of the 7th month. So it would have fit, just recording what we did to make sure people knew that we tried to do it right and got a few things correct. Was it called out possibly as a reminder to the Israelites at the time that their present situation actually mirrored what the Israelites went through as a nation coming out of Egypt. Because that wasn't a pretty condominium to live in either. Okay? They, they had to live in very, very difficult circumstances and rely heavily on God Himself. Or was this called out because of the true nature of celebration? I'm going to let you decide for yourself. But let me let you know what happened here in this building on Wednesday night that kind of spoke into it, if I may. See, Wednesday night, there was a group of us that were here going through the book of Ephesians in a small group. And in amongst our time together, there's this young believer who was coming in and out, singing songs, really enjoying being here. And as we were wrapping up, this young believer decided to come in and sit with us. And so we invited her to join us in prayer, which she did by starting off saying, thank you, Jesus. And spent a lot of time saying, thank you, Jesus. Oh, by the way, this young believer is seven years old. Did I forget to mention that? This is a seven-year-old. After we were done praying, this seven-year-old actually invited all of us into the sanctuary so she could stand up here and tell us how cool Jesus is. And how wonderful life is knowing God. Alan, am I lying? Dean, you were here, right? Okay, alright, I'm not, I'm not making stuff up. Larry, Larry you were here. Okay, alright, we got some folks over here. Carmen was here too. What? And the song. And she gave us a song. And it was beautiful. And somewhere along the way, Alan asks a seven-year, seven-year-old little princess, "Well, how do you worship God?" Now I don't know if you know much about kids, but it is not very difficult to confuse a little mind. You ask somebody something, and all of a sudden they get the deer in the headlights look, like I don't know what you just asked me. Okay, it actually happens to adults too. <laughs> okay, we're we're not immune, right? Okay, when Alan asked this seven-year-old, how do you worship God? There was no hesitation. It was almost as if she got the answer out before the question finished coming out of Alan's mouth. I kid you not. And this is what she said. The question was, how do you worship God? And her answer was, I come to church And I celebrate. Hmm. See that answer, that one cut me to the core. Because I love you folks. I love to be here. And I have to confess in front of God and everybody that sometimes I show up on Sundays and I'm not in a very celebratory mood. Yet here we sit back in this time In a place of rubble, in a place of destruction, living in makeshift whatever you can have for a home, looking at this monumental task that's gonna take decades and decades and decades to rebuild. And the first thing they did was they built the altar. And the second thing they did was they worshipped in celebration of their God. In other words, out of the beautiful mouth of a seven-year-old, these people back then went to church and celebrated. That's where they started. That's where it began. If you really want a good... Impact of how all this works, put your finger on the last verse of Ezra chapter 6 and then go with your finger to Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. Do you know what happens between the last verse in chapter 6 and the first verse in chapter 7? Does anybody know what happens between that time frame? 60 years. 60 years between those two verses. This whole thing took a lot of time. And it took the dedication of people that were focused on one project so they could hand over the restoration process that God had intended. This beautiful plan that he had, this purpose that he had to the next person who was going to hand it to Nehemiah who, by the way, showed up Another 14 years after Ezra did, this was not done overnight. As time passed, the temple of the Lord got rebuilt, though not again at all at once. There were times where the construction was halted thanks to our nasty neighbors But the physical rebuilding of the city and the physical rebuilding of the walls being the last piece is where we're going to focus our study over the next weeks to come. How the difficulties and the obstacles were overcome by a unified group that led them to a place of realized promise and that place of restoration. See, some of you here today are here because it's a Sunday and all you want to do is be here with your church family. You want to kick it with your waking homies. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Because it should be a celebration. It should be something we look forward to and that that worship as a community and as a family is something to be happy about. But some of you today, whether present here in the auditorium or watching online, some of you are here today in search of restoration. Something in your life needs God's work through His mercy, His grace, His love to affect some form of restoration Maybe the need is to restore relationships. Maybe the need is to restore identity and purpose, walking yourselves out of a cloud of fear. When I came to this church years ago, believe it or not, I was looking for full restoration of my relationship with our Heavenly Father. Some of of you may be here for that reason. See, because very few of us ever travel through life and not need God to restore something along the way or something inside of us. And as you will see in our upcoming study in Nehemiah, you can't just think your way through restoration. It's not about pulling out your Bible list of do's and don'ts and Finishing a few projects to make you feel better that puts you in a space of restoration. I don't want to say that God's not able to create miracles. I don't want to say that God can't do something right now, right here. The way he wants it done. And that's not what I want to say here today. But what I want to tell you, and what this book represents, is that I believe that God is more interested in the process rather than project completion. He wants you to go on this journey called restoration. Instead of trying to figure out, how do I restore something? How do I rebuild? How do I make it all work? He wants you in on that process. One that becomes more of a journey than a momentary time of miracle or epiphany. He wants you to advance farther than that. Nehemiah is actually all about that process. But the neat thing is is we get to see that process completed. We get to see the promises in Jeremiah come to reality and have a final conclusion of this thing called restoration. But the process was one that took a lot of effort and a lot of focus from a lot of people. People willing to stand as one before the Lord, a church body willing to see His purpose and His will over their own present circumstance. A group of believers clinging to that promise of peace and that hope that God really does have a plan for us started back at the promise. You can't move forward on a promise if you don't believe it's true. So whatever restoration that you're looking for today, whatever that looks like in your life, I really want to, I just want you to know that it can be realized. That you can actually get there. Because He does have a plan for you. He does have a hope for you. It includes a future, not a moment of sitting there ruminating on our past. Restoration can be realized. You can take the journey that allows God to work in your life, your heart, your soul, and yes, even your circumstances to produce that restoration that you desperately desire. If there's anything you can take away, know that it's possible. Secondly, and more importantly, restoration is a process driven by God that's going to require quite a bit of worship. Some dedicated, focused time in prayer. Some dedicated focused time in, in in sitting in his presence. And yes, some focused time in just celebration. Just in praise and thanks that we serve a God who's walking with us, not out in front of us to try to see how far we can go. He's walking through it with us. It's his plan. And he wants us to succeed. It's going to take a lot of worship to get that done. It's going to take a lot of focus. And most importantly, the final thing that I really want to stress that this book will stress to us is restoration in your life and in mine. Always, always, always starts at the altar let's pray, Lord we just do thank you for all of those that will walk us through this book of Nehemiah. Lord we thank you for everything that you want to speak into our lives the purpose, your intent, just your willingness to to stretch out your arms through your grace your love your mercy to know that we are partners with you that we get to be allies with you we get to go through the tough circumstances we get to go through the tough projects but we also get to celebrate not just to you but we get to celebrate with you So Lord I just lift up this body I lift up this time that we can be that one voice towards you and we thank you for all of the areas of restoration that you have given and that you are going to provide and we pray this as a group in your name Amen Thank you for joining us today for more information about Awakened Church Please visit our website, AwakenMac.com, that's awakenma dot C-O-M.